With Dutch and Brazilian heritage, Amanda Hoots holds a bachelor's degree in international relations and a master's in political science from Leiden University in the Netherlands. Confronted with both her privilege and intergenerational trauma at an early age, when she visited her mom's original home in a favela in Brazil, Amanda has been dedicating her professional life to humanitarian work. Since 2020, she works at GPAC, the Global Partnership for the Prevention of Armed Conflict, the world's largest member-led network of civil society organizations active in the fields of conflict prevention and peace-building across the globe. There, she now belongs to the Learning and Operations team. Together, we explore Amanda's story of becoming, namely why Amanda decided to pursue a humanitarian career and some of the greatest challenges and joys of her day-to-day. It really took me by surprise that they were so open and warm to me and welcoming. And my mother and I slept on the bedroom floor of my aunties. And even though it was small and simple, it was such a a warm and loving experience that I knew for sure, like I want to share in this warmth and this kindness. And I want to pay back as well so that, I mean, these communities that are striking with social, political and economic issues, basically that I can somehow contribute to improvement, that there's not this horrible crime, violence, the the poverty. And yeah, it's just such a strange contrast to see the the optimism, the happiness and the warmth and the love that that I received there. And on the other side, seeing that there's uh, still so many challenging factors, of course, that make it hard to have a good standard of life. I'm Carlota Gitsch, and this is the Waking Youth Podcast. I like to start by grounding things in a little bit of personal history. So your personal history. And I'm. you told me a little bit about your story and your family story. So I know a little bit about the context. Where would you trace back the roots of your interest in peace, humanitarian work, social work. How would you begin talking about that? I think it was not one specific moment that it was like an insight or an epiphany, like this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to become a doctor or I want to be an artist or a performer. I think it's kind of developed over time. And yeah, I I think, well... I reflect back on my teenage years. Uh, I was quite a difficult teen, actually. Okay. In what way? Not necessarily in being extremely rebellious. I was rebellious in some ways, kind of not listening to my parents and thinking I knew everything and, and wanting to be my own person and an adult. And I think probably many people relate to that. Um, but at the same time, I was also struggling with my appearance, which I think is also a common issue at that age. So in regards to my appearance, I mean, I I was just frustrated, to be honest, because 
Um, my father is uh, very white. He's a Dutch man. Uh, mm -hmm. My mother grew up in Brazil and came to the Netherlands when she was 18. So in terms of the features that I inherited from them, I was also always quite frustrated that I inherited the wrong ones. I felt like I didn't have the nice tan skin, but I did have the curls, the white nose, the white hips. Um, so that's um, kind of rooted a lot of insecurity for me, kind of wanting to fit in, wanting to, yeah, wanting to fit this mold of what beauty is, uh, was perceived as in this, mm -hmm. yeah, Western white society image. And uh, for me, uh, yeah, that was one cause of frustration for me, kind of wanting to fit in, wanting to be the same, and then at the same time, trying to embrace my bicultural identity because I did think it was quite uh, special and interesting. I mean, it's a country that, uh, Brazil is a country that's so far away, of course, from the Netherlands. And I grew up in such a relatively small, not so diverse city, a uh, small town, I should say, mm -hmm. actually. And why did your mom go, if I can ask, why did your mom go to the Netherlands? So this actually is one of the things that made me very insecure uh, when I was a teen. Like people would ask, like, why would your mom, why did your mom decide to come to the Netherlands? And what I understood over time, and I felt that she had some shame talking about this as well, but kind of grew in acceptance of it. She, when she was 18, it's, I mean, it's quite a young age, she... My grandma, so her mother, sent her to the Netherlands for more opportunities, economic opportunities, but also safety. I mean, her brother, so my uncle was at a, quite a young age, shut at the front door of their house uh, because they were living in quite an unsafe area in a favela. Wow. So, I mean, that it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, I mean, I can't even imagine what it's like to grow up in such an unsafe environment and, I, now I completely understand why you would say to your child, like why you would send her away for more safety, economic opportunity and to have to build a life for herself. So, yeah, I mm -hmm. that was one of the that was one of the reasons why my mother came to the Netherlands. Yeah, when she my father, I mean, they quickly had my brother and she had to stay, of course. But I mean, that whole story, it's it, they only told me in bits and pieces and then it changed yeah. a little bit over time as I think my mom grew more accepting of the of what she experienced as a young girl herself. Yeah, but I, I feel now so proud of her that she did take mm -hmm. such a big leap at such a young age, leaving your own country, your own culture, your family behind, everything you know, and to go to a country where you don't speak the language at all, uh, end up in a town you've never been, then to meet someone new and to establish this whole new life. I mean, I, I'm so proud and grateful that she did that. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. 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 Okay. And so you you were talking a little bit about how it, it wasn't a particular moment that this interest of yours in humanitarian aid started growing on you. So growing up and particularly around high school how do you did you have a solid idea of what you wanted to do or did you have had an idea or perhaps something else that you wanted to do just to understand how you end up in IR and later where you are 
Yeah, I, I feel that I, I had several interests, of course, as a young girl. I mean, one day I was going to be a doctor, the next day I was going to be a singer and so forth. Um, but what was really definitive for me is that my mother kept pushing me. Like, I think I think maybe it's, it's kind of a common trait of kids of uh, or expect a common expectation that parents, uh, migrant parents have, like, you have to make these opportunities that you have, you make them worth it. Um, so my mother always told me, you have to become rich so you can buy anything you want and you can be then so happy. And there's, I mean, you could be a doctor and then, I mean, uh, you would be, yeah, you would never worry that there's anything that you couldn't buy. So uh, that was a huge pressure on my shoulders, of course, as a young girl and, her understanding of becoming rich would be to go to uni to then get a high paying job so that was all that I was kind of focusing on and trying to achieve to make her dream kind of come true and to meet her expectations but that just put a lot of pressure on me yeah how did you deal with that pressure for me it was uh difficult because I tried to push myself, of course, to to meet those standards, to get good grades, to study Greek and Latin, even if I wasn't really interested in it, just so I could go to medical school and all of that. But I had this inner frustration with myself, like, no, this is not really what I, I'm interested in, but why am I not interested in this? Like, this is what I should be doing uh, to get where I want, where I should, yeah, where I would want to be or where my mother would want me to be and then to become happy. But I think when I uh, saw my parents also still, I think one point of realization for me that money would never be uh, a happy end goal was mm -hmm. when I saw my parents still struggling, even when we didn't necessarily grow up poor. I mean, we weren't rich either, but there was always still this, oh, we would want to or at least my mother was uh, the one who would always say oh we want more clothes or you know I would love to buy another handbag and it was never enough you know so there I really saw like even if you have a million dollars you would still want uh, millions more so that really made me realize that money would never give me happiness and therefore I have to find something else that will where I mm -hmm. do feel a purpose, I do feel a goal, and that does uh, give me uh, a drive. Um, so then I, I started, yeah, trying to to find my way. You know, like if it's mm -hmm. not uh, becoming rich, what else should I do with my life? <laughs> uh -huh. And this is not easy, of course. But I think, especially at the end of high school, I, I didn't pass my high school exams in one time I failed the first time and I was really devastated with that of course that was a huge disappointment to my parents and mm -hmm. I felt myself like a failure and I also agreed that uh, I, I had wanted to go to Brazil for many many years because I'd never been myself as mm -hmm. kids I mean the air flights are extremely expensive so I had been saving uh, for years to go and I agreed with my parents that if I passed my high school exams that I could go to Brazil and my mom would go with me. So when mm -hmm. I failed, I was so disappointed and I've been looking forward to it so much. And then uh, she said, okay, we, we should still go and I mean, <laughs> you've saved the money, so let's just go. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was so happy. I mean, getting to go there and finally seeing my family. I mean, I hadn't seen my grandma in years. Uh, seeing her, seeing the culture, the 
like the beauty, everything. It was so impressive to me. And and I think there really I got this insight that I got this understanding that this is what, yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, it, it was particularly when I was meeting my aunties because that's where we were staying while we were there. My aunties were not blood related, but they were my mother's uh, neighbors. And while my grandma was uh, working, my mother spent a lot of time there and they basically raised my mother. So to me, it was such a surreal experience kind of uh, being there as family. And in the Netherlands, it's quite unusual that you would be welcomed in that way with such warmth and kindness Mm -hmm. if you're not blood related. So that was... Like, so it really took me by surprise that they were so uh, open and warm to me and welcoming. And um, my mother and I slept on the bedroom floor of my aunties. And even though it was small and simple, it was such a a warm and loving experience that I knew for sure. Like, I want to share in this warmth and this kindness. And I want to pay back as well so that, I mean, these communities that are striking with uh, social, political and economic issues, basically that that's, I can somehow contribute to improvement, that, that, mm-hmm. that there's not this horrible uh, crime, violence, the, the poverty. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just such a strange contrast to see the, the optimism, the happiness and the warmth and the love that, that I received there. And on the other side, uh, seeing that there's, uh, still so many challenging factors, of course, that make it hard to have uh, a good standard of life. Yeah. And so your aunties at that point, they were living in a favela? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize myself, actually, yeah. that it was uh, such... Um, because there's different levels of favela. Like there's certain areas that are very dangerous, but... Mm-hmm. I, I took the second time I went there, I took an Uber and Uber refused like to take me up there. I was like, why? It's so <laughs> safe there. But in his eyes, it was like, oh, no, this is already too much favela mm-hmm. and it's not safe to, to go up. And I mean, at night we, we would hear shooting mm-hmm. sometimes, but it was relatively safe where they lived. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. And did you speak Portuguese with them? How did you do it with the language? Yeah, that was a challenge. <laughs> I didn't speak uh, great Portuguese at the time, but mm-hmm. like with hand and feet, you get a yeah. long way. So, um, no, my my uh, nephew was the only one speaking English, actually. Mm-hmm. So he would do a little bit of translation and you pick up easily if it's yeah. uh, if you're around it all the time. So I did. Uh, mm-hmm. We communicated creatively. Mm-hmm. OK. OK, so, wow, that's I cannot imagine the contrast of those two realities so was that a a catalyst then for your choice after that of what to study yeah absolutely I mean it was such a a transformative experience for me kind of Mm -hmm. I've never before that I'd never been outside of Europe uh, at all so it was the first time kind of seeing the different standard of living the the poverty the favelas I mean I remember like it's ingrained in my memory the the way from the airport to my auntie's house, seeing all these houses that were yeah, built in with yeah, the materials that are there. And it's yeah, it left a really big impression on me and it's yeah, really motivated me to start and, and kind of explore what can I do to contribute or to help, mm-hmm. feeling so 
uh, aware of my privilege in that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so between, you know, that point where you choose international relations all the way to then joining GPAC, which stands for the Global Partnership for the Prevention of Armed Conflict. Correct? Yes, yes. we nailed it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, what would you... Yeah, perhaps what would you highlight as the transformative experiences that then equipped you to also do the work that you're doing or perhaps open your eyes to certain realities or ideas that were helpful to what you're doing now? So, yeah, maybe to, to start, I think mm -hmm. my, yeah, my, my motivation for getting into uni, uh, taking the course that I did, I studied international relations, um, international studies. So I wanted to better understand what are the social economic issues that the cultural issues that are causing such inequality in the world, basically. And then you realize there's so many factors, there's so many power dynamics at play, and it's it's so complicated, yeah. Uh, yeah. basically. So it did give me great insight and I got more interested in, in politics, particularly mm -hmm. seeing how much impact the choices that are made there have on, on, on communities, on entire population groups, of course, and particularly the, the impact of certain discourses. So... For example, I started to explore more the uh, whole war on drugs uh, discourse, mm -hmm. how just the framing of uh, drug users as criminals has yeah. such devastating impacts on, on entire communities, the criminalization. Yeah, from that, I got quite interested in exploring for my master thesis, human security discourse. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I came across this term, human security, it was like an epiphany to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's such a, a powerful uh, concept that instead of focusing on state security, so that safety means that the state is doing well. And sorry if I'm getting too much uh, no, into no, the no. nerdy side of no. political no, no, no. Go science for it. here. Go for it. I was going to okay. just ask you now what it means for you. Yeah. Yeah. So how I understood it is that human security is more about the aspects uh, that make you as an individual secure. So it's economic security, mm -hmm. it's psychological security, it's it's health. And it, it has so many different aspects that it really encapsulates this is what you the human is of security instead of just focusing on uh, security means fighting and war and protecting uh, mm -hmm. a certain nation state I mean mm -hmm. that to me just and I guess it, it somehow relates to my personal background wanting to understand like mm -hmm. also how how it kind of helped me also to justify why my mother made this trip to the Netherlands to this shift and this move, big move to the Netherlands, right? Because there's often this narrative in the Netherlands that there's luck seekers, that if you're not coming from a humanitarian crisis area, like in true conflicting war, uh, that you don't have the right to seek 
that it's not justified that you're migrating to a different country that What's you're not that allowed term? to see can you repeat the term uh, luck, luck seekers it's like you're just coming here in search of luck in search of money basically you're an economic refugee so there's this huge like taboo around this in the netherlands at least from i guess this is also part of the shame that I sometimes felt like my mo mother did come here in search of economic opportunity and I mean she rightfully did I feel like now but back then it was like oh she didn't come here because she had family here she didn't I mean mm -hmm. she did have a cousin here and yeah uh, but technically the she would be classified as an economic migrant right mm -hmm. and mm -hmm especially in this political debate of too many migrant inflow and do we want, can we uh, accept more refugees? I feel that this is such an important conversation to have. Like, when does someone, uh, when is it justified that someone comes in search of their own happiness and their own luck? I mean, we're all certainly searching for it essentially so why does one person have the privilege to live here and another person doesn't and for me kind of looping back to that concept of human security she didn't have factors of human security fulfilled so she was living in a uh, in fragility and in in human insecurity so it's only justified and understandable that you then go seek Mm -hmm. uh, those factors so that you can live in, in human security. So that mm -hmm. to me was was so so interesting to understand and writing my master thesis about it came across this great policy note that uh, Deepak developed on, on human security which helped me to better understand the concept uh, and writing my thesis and then I ended up doing an internship there and uh, never left <laughs> essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just a, a quick tangent do you feel that 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 is still a reality the the prejudice about immigrants in the Netherlands particularly the ones who are I don't know if they're still perceived as luck seekers Yeah I do I do feel especially under this uh, more rightist government and trying to also appeal to more populist uh, right voters uh, you do see that they're trying to pin these narratives of the country's full, we don't have any more space. And of course, there's some truth in that, but we, you need to have a, a decent moral uh, discussion about it as well. It's not that you can demonize these people for coming here in, in search of, of, of safety, if it's mm -hmm. physical or economical, that they... Yeah, just because you don't want to invest the economic resources mm -hmm. to set up decent procedures and, and uh, um, mm -hmm. processes around the influx of, of immigrants, yeah. I feel it's, um, yeah, it's a simplistic and and inhumane uh, mm -hmm. narrative that's being spun by the, by the current government, unfortunately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so before we go into GPAC, which I'm very curious about, what I find interesting about your academic path is that, you know, I have some friends that studied international relations, and one of the comments they tend to make is that it's very enlightening to understand at the system level, systems level what is going on and the complexity of the challenges ahead of us and already taking place and that 
tends to be also quite theoretical compared to, let's say, a business degree or a communication degree. What I find interesting about your path was that you seem to have always hands-on experience supporting those studies. Did you hesitate in the, because I know this is a theme when you're, when you're in university, did you hesitate leaving the bachelor and getting yourself in a master's? Can you walk me a little bit through that decision or because you were already, you know, doing in the field, I see that you visited Brazil. I don't know if that was after that first trip with your mom. Was that after? At the yeah, favelas? Yeah, I went to second time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you can just tell me a little bit about that, how was that decision for you? Yeah, so I always knew that I didn't want to pursue an academic career. So for me, the doing the bachelor's and the master's mm-hmm. was really a way to explore where I wanted to go professionally uh, working in uh, the development field. Why not? Why not the cad- academia? Ah, interesting question. I guess for me, it just it's greatly motivating to be hands-on, be in touch mm-hmm. with people, and to apply and practice, make make an impact, and that you see the impact of your work, even if it's not directly but virtually. And that was a, a great motivation for me to to choose to be to pursue a career in the development field. Uh, yeah, so that's why I, I, yeah, yeah, an academic career wasn't necessarily appealing to me. Uh, mm-hmm. I kind of had this idea of it being being stuck behind a computer on a desk, which essentially yeah. I'm now as well. So it's not a great <laughs> difference. But. Yeah. Okay. So that then the decision to make a master's, there was not, um, it's just natural to do that then. Uh, okay. Yeah. No, for, I guess when I decided to do the International Studies Bachelor, I was very much searching still. What is my, uh, the field that I want to focus on? Where do I want to, yeah, where do I want to be? And to mm-hmm. indeed understand these bigger uh, sys- uh, systemic issues and concepts. And I felt, and honestly, that that was such a wide perspective mm-hmm. that for my master's, I needed to zoom in. To something to better understand but also to develop my own expertise so yeah like I said it was for me very interesting to see the impact of uh, certain policies uh, to get more into policy evaluation uh, political discourse and explore the impacts of all those and then of course do that through developing case studies seeing what it means in different contexts yeah I, I okay. guess that was my reasoning behind that yeah okay cool uh so gpac what is gpac and why are you there and what is your role gpac <laughs> it's a greatly complicated puzzle that we, mm. we always when we, <laughs> whenever we try to explain it it's like what is this this magic word no uh gpac uh i'm so grateful to be working there it's uh i'm of course incredibly biased but <laughs> It's a, they don't, they're not forcing me to say anything. It's my honest mm-hmm. opinion that it's such a great organization. And to me, it was appealing to work there, first, of course, to because of my interest in human security. But once I really got to know the network, it's because of its 
organizational structure. Mm -hmm. So GPEC is organized in a way, unlike a lot of other uh, international non-governmental organizations, uh, INGOs, or a lot of other development organizations. Traditionally, a lot of them are organized in a top-down way where there's a global office somewhere in Europe or America, in the States where they communicate with the country offices. And mm -hmm. definitely that uh, a lot of other organizations and other INGOs are organized in a top-down way where the head office is somewhere in Europe or the States uh, and they delegate uh, and communicate work with uh, country offices and then work with local society organizations, whereas GPEC is completely the opposite way. So instead of this traditional uh, development aid perspective of we're going to help you develop your communities uh, through our approaches, GPEC is an organization that is led by local civil societies. So it's completely run by local peace builders of over 250 member organizations who are all working on peace building and conflict prevention in their own local communities. And they decide what we do as a global network. So that to me is so important uh, that they are in charge. And we uh, at the Global Secretariat in The Hague are just there to support them and to basically do whatever they tell us to do. So they are the strategic driver behind uh, what we do as a network. They decide our thematic priorities because they know best, right? What is mm -hmm. now urgent in a community? So, for example, two years ago, we identified climate uh, security and emerging threats with COVID as one of the most important issues in peace building and conflict prevention. And then we said this when they identified this priority collectively, we all said, OK, but now let's see what can we together as a global network do to address these issues local communities are facing and mm -hmm. uh, working together in that way with colleagues from Kyrgyzstan and Palestine and and Colombia and uh, Cameroon is just so exciting mm -hmm. uh, getting all connected even if it's online and uh, when we get the opportunity in person um, to exchange mm -hmm. it's so uh, so worthwhile and you really see uh, how much expertise and knowledge is there on the ground um, mm -hmm. uh, to benefit from, from in other contexts so we facilitate a lot of knowledge exchange and learning uh, to benefit from that local expertise. Mm -hmm. So what would you say at within this context of your work at GPAC, the biggest challenge and the biggest learning comes to mind? I think the biggest challenge... Uh, do you mean for me personally or as like a, a global network organization? I was thinking more personally, but if it comes a collective one that you would like that you feel inspired to address, go for it. So I think collectively, I've realized that it's so difficult to make the case for peace building and, and conflict prevention and investing in that uh, because it requires patience and it requires a lot of time and resources. And in the end, it's quite difficult to prove that you've prevented a conflict because, I mean, nothing happened. Luckily, mm -hmm. it didn't. Uh, and of course, we tried to find ways around it with early warning systems and all sorts of uh, interesting solutions and, and methodologies. But uh, yeah, just funding in, in peace building conflict prevention, it's really uh, a major challenge. 
Now, for me personally, working in this field, working with GPEC, it's it has been such a rich experience, getting to connect with so many different people, learning from so many experts, young and old, with a shared miss- mission of desiring peace, uh, mm-hmm. wanting to have peace personally in our communities, in our societies, and globally, mm-hmm. of course. And that has been a a driving force of inspiration for me, uh, working with them and connecting with this community of like-minded people who all share the same mission of desiring peace. But it has also uh, forced me to reflect on my own person in in, uh, taking this space, of course. So there's certain privilege, of course, that I have. And at the same time, uh, I feel that through my background and mm-hmm. kind of having inherited that transgenerational trauma almost of conflict and the impact that it has on, on one's life, but then still realizing that, yeah, kind of facing the guilt of, and I think we've discussed this also a yeah. little bit when we when we met in Madrid, like the, mm-hmm. the guilt of uh, having that privilege and taking that space, kind of asking yourself, do I deserve to claim this space what is my role in in helping others mm-hmm. uh um should i not i've i've wondered my, myself like should i even be working this position should it not be some uh, local expert from a country that is in conflict at at the moment i mean i mean in the netherlands it's relatively peaceful and that kind of feeling of guilt it was difficult to deal with, and, and I'm still dealing with it at times now. But I try to uh, remind myself that it's all interconnected, basically. We all, in our personal lives, in in uh, our societies, mm-hmm. conflict is everywhere. It can arise so quickly, and we all have a responsibility because we're interconnected and we are benefiting from a certain systems and we're all we all have this responsibility to contribute to mm-hmm. the betterment of that system, I believe. So in that way, yeah, I try to be, of course, mindful of my own privilege and and grateful for the things and the opportunities that I do have working at GPAC and and getting the opportunities that I that I have. Uh, but I also try to be very mindful that it's a responsibility that I have to take. I have to contribute. I have to uh, use that privilege in a way to yeah make sure that the conflict that is uh, faced elsewhere uh, that we all contribute to the betterment of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And and have you ever felt resistance from the side of the local peace builders? Mm, no, mm-hmm. I, I haven't actually. No, it's actually the the opposite. I would say I was recently in Cameroon two weeks ago, and there I had the opportunity to visit a project that we're doing for the EU. Uh, called Voice, uh, which is aimed at preventing radicalization of uh, youth. So there, actually, when when we first arrived, a lot of the local partners that we work with there kind of perceived and still had this internal assumption, right, that we that my colleague and I, coming from the Global Secretariat, are the ones representing GPAC, and that we would be kind of telling them what to do or 
whatever but that's where we actually try to unpack some of that and to kind of have this conversation right of of course we're very uh happy to be here but you have to tell us what to do you mm -hmm. are the one uh, representing gpac through your uh, member organization you are the one with mm -hmm. the expertise here and yeah. we're just here to to support uh wherever you want us to support mm -hmm. uh, so that was quite interesting to see that play out in person because often online it's a bit more difficult to perceive those power dynamics and in person it was quite it's a bit more clear in even mm -hmm. the body language how yeah. we perceive certain power dynamics and I think it's so important working across regionally with international colleagues that we unpack those expectations or assumptions that we kind of uh, integrated ourselves and that we're aware of our privileges and try to ensure a safe and equal working ground. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. <laughs> um, okay, so for someone who might be pondering, considering joining humanitarian some kind of humanitarian work you know i've heard a lot of people that were interested in it but they wonder if they were tough enough for example um or others that felt this aspect of the guilt that you're describing what are for you perhaps what is for you the character or perhaps the traits that are nice to have for someone who will be embarking this journey of, of being involved in humanitarian work? I think really the field new needs all types of personalities and it benefits from having different characteristics there. But I think one universal one that's really important to have is, of course, uh, compassion. Yeah, being driven by wanting to make social impact, to, to help others. And at the same time, I think being reflective also on yourself is is essential because especially in this field the personal and the uh, pro professional is really intertwined very often mm -hmm. so you need to understand yourself and of course the work can be so emotional and really devastating at times i mean it's it's definitely challenging and at times I've wondered myself as well, is this some is this the type of work that I'm capable to do? Am I like mentally strong enough to yeah. see of all of this despair? And there I think it's very important to invest in your psychological well-being, your mental well-being, to seek support when you need to, and really see that as an investment as well because if you feel strong and confident about yourself if you feel that you can be vulnerable and talk about the the issues that are bothering you and are kind of at peace with yourself then you can also carry that energy and that attitude forward in your work and i think that's so important that we come uh, as our true selves uh, in in the workspace so that we can truly connect with others and and really make a establish lasting relations and connections and and make an impact together because you don't get very far alone you have to work together yeah. and uh, yeah we need good relations to do that absolutely okay and our last question you know as this podcast evolves this question of age and more than age becoming this process of becoming an adult or becoming more mature than yesterday 
I feel more and more inspired to have this intertemporal conversations with your younger self and older self to get us thinking about, you know, where we were, where we used to be with all those doubts and insecurities and how far we have come. And also a couple of years from now, what does our current self think and feel would be really important for us to take with us? So what would be, you know, those words that you would like to share with your younger self that was figuring it out and your older self that is about to, that is now becoming as well, no? Yeah, it's it's a continuing journey, right? You're never fully uh, become. For my younger self, I would definitely, I wouldn't say anything in terms of, or oh, you should do this or that, because I think that process or of figuring that out yourself is kind of what's part of the journey and part of the struggle and that forms uh, who you are as a person and I think it's really important to experience all parts of, of your personal journey but what I would say would have said maybe looking back is to not be afraid to reach out for support when you feel that it's needed or even when you doubt if it's needed I mean you yeah it's a lot that uh, you go through, especially as a young person, it's for me, it was such, and I think for so many other young people, it's such an intense period of your life and having a friend or a psychologist or or an aunt or, or someone else, even a friend, yeah, just to, to talk to, to share those struggles with. It can really be such a weight lifted off the shoulders and to realize that you're also not at it alone. Just seeking that support, I think, is so important because looking back, I, I was so stuck in my head sometimes mm. and thinking the the world was going to end and then in reality it it mm -hmm. yeah just mm -hmm. took one conversation with a friend to completely change that that viewing so mm -hmm. that's what I would say to my younger self to my older self I truly hope that I stay optimistic and hopeful mm. I think it's very important to to dream big and even if some may say that it's a bit naive or a bit uh, you have to be patient and all that, of course, that's true. But it's also important to stay ambitious and hopeful that that things can be different. And yeah, kind of being brave and stepping out to make sure that things do change because they can. You just have to strongly believe and visualize uh, what that can look like and, and then share it and then slowly that can start to uh, become so yeah and em embody that embody that possibility exactly mm -hmm. exactly so important so yeah that would be my message <laughs> beautiful thank you is there anything else you would like to share um, how do you feel <laughs> Grateful. I just wanted to say thank you, honestly. I mean, uh, like I said before, I'm uh, quite an introverted person. Yeah. Uh, don't normally speak out like this. And uh, you've made it such a safe space, such um, uh, a lovely conversation. So thank you so much for uh, for inviting me here. And um, yeah, I'm sure many more interesting conversations to come. Thank you, Amanda. Waking Youth is an independent podcast production that you can find more about at wakingyouth.substack.com. 
Our lovely theme music is composed and produced by Carlos Sierra, who also edits our episodes. And I'm Carlota Gitch. If you like this episode, please consider sharing it with someone you love. And before you go, thank you for listening and being with us. Ciao!